came a long way. That's what the songs say. And I could do all things. I could do all things. Yeah, I could do all things. Yeah, yeah. We came a long way. That's what the songs say. And I could do all Hey, what's up? What's going on? And welcome to the Be Real Podcast, where we keep it real on social issues, history, news, faith, and everything in between. It's your one-stop podcast with thought-provoking talk and real content. Now, it's time to get real with your host, Brandon Mosley. You know I'm going to tell you, so I got one time. And I can do all things. Yeah, yeah. And that's what the songs say. I can do all things. Yeah, yeah. Long way. And I can do all things. Yeah, yeah. What is going on? Thank you again for joining me for season three. I appreciate you, the listener. Um, Real quick, if you haven't yet, go ahead and give me a five star on Apple podcast review and write me a a glowing review, please. I really appreciate it. Let people know also where you're getting your podcast fix here at the Be Real podcast. So today we have, I would say, a difficult conversation that we need to have um, and a look back in history, in American history. Looking back on American history, if you're part of the BIPOC community, is a sordid past that you look back and see things that, hey, this is amazing to look at, to see. Then there's portions of the history that is frightening, upsetting, to say the least. So, The reason why, because we had a devastating cowardice terrorist act that took place in the Atlanta region this week. And for me, I was, I don't know, it it came out of nowhere. Uh, It popped up on my CNN app and I was just so tired of, you know, always seeing things like that, I, I just was like, yeah, not again, right? Then when you look into what happened, then you hear something like this. Also said, Captain Jay Baker's description of the suspect's frame of mind was outrageous. He was pretty much fed up and kind of at the end of his rope, and yesterday was a really bad day for him, and this is what he did. I couldn't believe that a police captain was recounting the bad day that the killer had without a shred of empathy for the really bad day that the eight victims and their families had, the incredible grief that the whole community is going through. And this is the kind of thing that makes people question law enforcement and whether they are really there for the people that they're supposed to be protecting. Captain Baker is also under attack for an anti-Asian Facebook post uh, of his last year. He talked up T-shirts that said, COVID-19, imported virus from China. We reached out to the Cherokee County Sheriff's Office for a comment, but we have yet to hear back. Gail? Thank you, Mark. That was a moment, I have to say, when I was watching that news conference and he called it a bad day. And all I could think of was eight people are grieving tonight. It's a guy that had an issue. He blames a race of people for his problem. And then he goes and eliminates what he thinks to eliminate the temptation that he has an issue with. It's It's outrageous. It's a peculiar amount of empathy for a mass shooter. It's humanizing the shooter. It's humanizing the shooter once again. And can I point out that the shooter is a white man who is alive after they knew that he had killed eight people. And he was armed. And he was armed, and they knew that too. 
Wow, they make some great points then, right? So let's unpack this for a second before we get into the show completely. Um, I won't be able to tell a story because I, I don't think this show is best for that. But think about it. They're trying to find a way not to blame it on racism, right? And the whole time during that um, press conference, they were saying, we talked to the killer, we talked to him, and he he says he's a, a sex addict, so it's, it has nothing to do with race. So they're taking the word of a murderer over the actual experience of Asian Americans and saying it's a sex addict thing and he wanted to eliminate a source of discomfort in his life, a temptation, right? So we have to ask ourselves, okay, let, let's, ta- let's take that route. Let's take that route for a second. So that means he has a strange fetish, fetish for Asian women then, right? Uh, hypersexualization. So where does that come from? That comes from racial stereotypes of Asian women. So the real root of all of that is still, if you circle back, is systemic racism. So in essence, it's still a hate crime. No matter the way you split it up, no matter the way you try to present it to the American people, that's what it is. And we're being told that this this killer, I won't say his name, this killer is having a bad day. When I have a bad day, which I don't believe in bad days, right? I say there's no bad days, only bad moments. But when I'm having a bad moment, I can go read a book. I can go take a walk. I can I can go spend time with my sons, right? I, I find something to do. I don't say, let me go kill people, right? And to even equate having a bad day for an excuse to murder people, shows you the 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 white privilege uh, this man just received from a law enforcement officer who he himself has promulgated promoted the racial ideas or racist ideas that this virus is a chinese virus And on top of all that, hate crime for the last four or five years has been going up for each group, each group. But for the last year, Asian Americans, about 3,800 different incidents dealt with racism, right? Some form of attack. And many of those people were being attacked, or guess what? Women and elderly people. So the most vulnerable people in that community are at danger. Hmm. That kind of shows you what type of people we're dealing with who are attacking these people. If you're going to attack anyone that's horrible within itself, then you're going to attack the most vulnerable people An 85 year old woman walking home by herself. And you're going to push her down. Hmm. You're going to beat up a 79 year old man in the store. I'm, I'm making these ages up there. They're elderly people. Then you're going to go on a, on a shooting spree and kill middle age women. Wow. So that's where we're at. So where did this come from? Okay. Why do you keep calling this the Chinese virus? There are reports of dozens of incidents of bias against Chinese Americans in this country. Your own aide, Secretary Azar, says he does not use this term. He says ethnicity does not cause the virus. 
Why do you keep using this? Because it comes from China. It's not racist at all. No, not at all. It comes from China. That's why. Comes from China. I want to be accurate. Yeah, please, John. I have the great. I have great love uh, for all of the people from our country. But uh, as you know, China tried to say at one point, maybe they stopped now, that it was caused by American soldiers. That can't happen. It's not going to happen. Not as long as I'm president. Uh, it comes from China. And luckily, you're no longer president. So. No, it did not start with Donald Trump. No, it didn't. He exacerbated the situation using dog whistle politics. He gave out a a clarion call, a rallying call to those who have hate within them to go after Asian Americans. And that was a year ago. So since that time, since he said that in the last year, 3,800 different incidents, let that sink in. So let's get to the show. I know the intro was long, but we had to get get through some stuff first. We're going to be talking about history. We're going to talk about the Chinese Exclusionary Act. We're talking about Filipino history. We're talking about Japanese history. Um, in America. No, I can't get through every group and no, I can't get through all the history, but I'm going to do the best I can. So enjoy the show. go back to the industrial age, the gilded age for quite a minute in terms of this next um, subject we're going to broach. And it's about the Chinese Exclusionary Act. But before we get to that, we need to kind of talk about how how do we end there? How do we get there? Um, So in the 1860s, as you know, America was going through growing pains, right? You have the Civil War. You have the end of slavery. Then you, after that, of course, the next decade was all about Reconstruction and the, the ultimate failure of that. But let's get to the idea of the 1850s when we started to actually recruit Chinese men from Southern China to come and work for the railroads and to farm and for cheap labor, right? In 1865, the president of the Central Pacific Railroad, Leland uh, Stanford, said this. As a class, they, speaking of the Chinese laborers, are quiet, peaceable, patient, industrious, and economical, more prudent and economical than white laborers. They are content with less wages. We find them organized for what? Mature aid and assistance. 
Without them, it would be impossible to complete the Western portion of this great national enterprise. Speaking of the trans, uh, transcontinental railroad, railroad within the time required by the act of Congress. So within this quote, the president of the Central Pacific Railroad in 1865, pretty much saying they don't complain about horrible working conditions that leave many of them killed at work. They don't complain about the long hours, in essence, he's saying. They're quiet and we can possibly get over on them, right? And they're cheap. And with that being said, without them, keyword without them, it would be impossible to complete the Western portion of this great national enterprise. So saying they were almost indispensable. They were necessary to build this great wealth that America now holds because this railroad connected the East to the West and also was a way to bring things in from Asia from California and take it all the way where to New York for what industrialization. Hmm. So we use these workers. This sounds very similar to what we've done with so many other groups with um, African-Americans, with Latinx, Latinos um, bring cheap labor in, use them. Right. Then something happens, though. After a while, this place becomes their home. America, California did for many Chinese Americans on the West Coast, Washington, stuff like that. And they start to build their own life, their own communities. They started to find themselves opening up businesses, right? And 20% of the workers or laborers in mining companies, railroads, farming, factories, and even fishermen, 20% of them were Chinese. That's in California, the labor force in 1870. But in the same time, they only counted towards 0.002% of the population. So what happened? By 1876, we find ourselves in a depression. And when we're in a depression, we have to guess what? Blame someone. That's what our president, former president did when he started to blame the Chinese Americans for this virus or China for this virus and for the economic downfall, it has to blame someone. Someone has to be a scapegoat. And in 1876, Chinese Americans became that scapegoat. They started to chant when I say they white Americans in poverty, especially they started to say they're taking away our jobs. Doesn't that sound familiar? Then you started to see a push for anti-Chinese legislation and violence started to happen in the West coast or on the West coast. So all this started to occur, right? Then by 1882, we have a Congress that passes the Chinese exclusionary act. This is the first time in American history that immigration was going to be based off. Guess what? Race, right? And that only in the United States of America that 
you could not immigrate or naturalize, so become a citizen if you were Chinese. And the the chant started to be Chinese must go. And that was a movement that became so strong that within five years, we're, start, we're talking about in 1882 where that last year you had about 39,000 39,500 immigrants from Chinese that came. And by um, 1887, only 10 came. Wow. And during that whole time, um, off and on, and this was only supposed to be a 10-year act, it stayed around for 60 years, okay? And during that time, different acts, quota acts started to come around to stop different Asian communities from coming. And those quotas made it almost difficult or impossible for people to come because they're saying a certain percent based off like 10% or something like that. That's in the 3%. I think that's in the country. Now that's the amount of uh, immigrants will allow from that country. So we're looking at in 1907 through 1914, you have about 180,000 Northern Europeans coming and Western Europeans. Those are the ones, those are the immigrants that America truly wanted. But the immigrants they really did not want um, were going to be Eastern Europeans and Asians, right? Um, and they had less people in the United States. So that means their quota was going to be a lot less. But at that time, they had about 685,000 people who came. When the Emergency Quota Act in 1921 was enacted, it went from that amount of 685 to down to 158,000 and 198,000 Western and Northern Europeans. And by the second Emergency Quota Act of 1924, amended it, it went down to only 21,000 Eastern Europeans and Asians to 140,000 of Northern, almost 141. Same thing in 1929, went down to 20,000. So that's what we saw happen, right? So with that being said, with less cheap labor, where were they going to get their labor from? So in the early 1900s, we started to bring in small numbers of Koreans and some Japanese, right? And they used those groups as strike breakers to work. So that became um, an issue with, guess what? Poor to middle-class white uh, citizens because they saw Koreans or Japanese as as um, strike breakers because at this time they're, they're trying to unionize and of course, capitalism, of course, big business, of course you have to make money. They brought in strike breakers and who are the strike breakers? Those Koreans and those Japanese. So it created a hostility towards them. Um, so this continued on. And it got so bad in California, in San Francisco especially, that the school board decided on this. Here's a quote. Our children should not be placed in any position where their youthful impressions may be affected by association with pupils of the Mongolian race. Speaking of all ages, that's 1905 in San Francisco. So they decided, the school board, um, to establish segregated Chinese primary schools. And that was going to be every Asian, 
right? They called it Chinese primary school, but anyone who who looked Asian was going to go there, right? And with that being said, by the turn of the century, after Japanese immigrants started to settle in um, and and help take over the jobs that, of course, Chinese couldn't take over because now they're being excluded. That hate turned on them as well. And the superintendent, Aaron uh, Ottoman, said this. Any child that may apply for enrollment or at present attends your school who may be designated under the head of Mongolian must be excluded and in further furtherance of this, please direct them to apply at the Chinese school for enrollment. So they're all lumping in every Asian citizen, Chinese, Japanese, Korean list goes on. You, you can't, you can't go to this white school. So this is what we saw happen. Right. And we have to ask ourselves. So who, who was next to be um, discriminated against the next big group in California um, was the Filipino community. So in Stockton, you started to have a big Filipino community where they even had um, a small part in town that called they called Little Manila, right? So you will start to see Filipino men um, dressed and sharp. They get they're getting good jobs. They they're going to clubs. Um, they're going to pool halls. They're ha- going to dances. They're having a good time, making good money, working at the canneries, and and they're coming over for the American dream. And by 1924, every Asian group were a part of the Chinese Exclusionary Act, pretty much. Chinese, Japanese, Korean, and in- even Indians, right? But Filipinos, since they were coming from the Philippines and that was annexed by America years prior during the Spanish-American War, they started to come in in the 1920s and pick up jobs that were cheap labor because it's 1920s. It's the roaring twenties. We've got money coming in. Like there's no problems. Right. So you, you have them working at farm canneries and they're taking over the jobs that the Chinese, Japanese, Koreans were, were doing before them. Um, and with that being said, all this was all, everything was good until we got to the late 1920s and you started to see, the uh, recession coming in. So by 1929, you started to see violence and you started to see um, legislation come through. So the Tidings McDuffie uh, Act of 1935 placed a quarter, a quota, I'm sorry, on the Filipino migration as well of about 50, right? Um, But before all that in Stockton with Remember, I, I was telling you about the sharp dressing Filipino guys. Um, the problem was they weren't well liked. Wearing the fa- fancy suits, uh, hanging around town. And the first real recorded set of violence, um, serious violence, happened in, on New Year's Eve, 1926. And you, you can imagine New Year's Eve, of course, it's, it, you're going to come out with your best dress. You're going to have a good time. Um, you with your friends. And what happens is that white men started to look for Filipino men in pool halls and in clubs to beat them up. Right. 
it escalated. Some some were stabbed, and it started to seem like they're being hunted. Right. So we see in late January 1930, uh, the Watsonville riot broke out when hundreds of white men um, went hunting uh, farm workers. Right. And blame them for guess what? Low wages. And what's happening in 1930? You guessed it. Uh, economic downfall, right? Downturn. So the depression's happening, right? Um, and with that being said, at the time, another issue was that many Filipino families wouldn't send their daughters to America because they 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 heard what was happening to Filipino men, right? So the vast majority of, of those who were being migrate who who were migrating to America were young single Filipino men. And guess who they started to date? White women. And some would say the reason for this anger and animosity towards Philip these Filipino men were that they were dating white women. And what happened was in California, the law became that it was illegal for Filipino men to marry white women. Right. And it got so bad that around the same time, a little bit after Watsonville, right. White men bombed the Filipino Federation building. Just bombed it um, while people were, sl- were sleeping. So th- you kind of see the the jealousy, the anger happening. Because of either popularity, because of the way they dress, sounds like the zoot suit, right? Right. Or because simply they think they're, they're, they're the reason for their economic woes. And once again, this is very similar. This is a cycle keeps replaying. We saw this in the last four years, people being blamed for people of color being blamed for the plight of those who are white and in poverty in certain areas in America and now we're seeing it's a pattern. It's the same oppressive playbook that we see throughout American history. Someone has to be blamed and it's always going to be a person of color. And lastly, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention this, that signs even started to to be put, put up in Stockton and other towns that read this positively, no Filipinos allowed. That sounds a whole lot like we what we talked about in sundown towns. So it's the same playbook, right? So the next group I want to talk about and the next historic uh, event is dealing with Japanese Americans. So I want you guys to listen to this, which is a diary of what it was like in those prisons. Uh, I know we call them internment camps, but they were prisons. My mother kept a diary from the day that she married. It's kind of heart-wrenching. She starts out with all this hopefulness, finding the love of her life and looking forward to having a family. Nine months later, they find themselves imprisoned. They were removed to the Tanfran racetrack, which was a temporary detention facility. If you had 116th Japanese blood, even if you were a baby in an orphanage, you were put in an orphanage in one of the camps. This was based on race. 
My mother had uh, morning sickness and in, placed in a horse stable where they could still smell the manure. And she wrote in her diary that she was sick every day and unable to eat. She was concerned about what was happening to the baby that was growing inside of her. From there, they were sent to Topaz, Utah. There, my brother was born. There was so much turmoil inside the camp. There were factions, those that were supportive of the administration. And then there was a growing resistance. That resistance movement uh, gave them a place where they could feel some personal dignity by opposing the oppressive conditions of the terrible food. Uh, there was not enough milk for the children. Uh, there was a limit on how much coal you could have to heat the rooms. It was 1943 by then, and they were required to answer what was called the loyalty questionnaire, asking them if they were, one, uh, willing to bear arms against the enemy, and two, if they would be willing to disavow any loyalty to the emperor, which they never had in the first place. By then, they had already decided that they would have a better life in Japan, and eventually they would renounce their American citizenship out of despair. People who answered no to those two questions uh, were considered disloyal by the government and then transferred to the maximum security Tule Lake uh, Segregation Center in Northern California. And this is where I was born. I asked my mother, why would you have another child in a prison camp? And she said, well, there were rumors that if you had more children, they wouldn't separate the family, which turned out not to be true because uh, eventually my father was separated from us and sent to a different prison camp. So how do we get to a place where if you had a drop of Japanese blood, you're going to be in an internment camp? How do we get to that? How do we get to order 9066? How did FDR come to this conclusion, right? So, as we know, the day that would live in infamy um, happened, right? When Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. So, that very same day, that December day, you had the FBI go out and round up 1,291 Japanese people many American citizens and arresting them and freezing all their assets. And on top of that, after freezing their assets, they also searched many homes out of the outside of just the 1,291 people and seized property. So took property that same day. They also arrested those people. Um, they hatched a plan to send them out over time to Montana, New Mexico, and North Dakota. Um, and they couldn't speak to family. They didn't speak to family. So their families did not know where they were going, where they were. And that's where we were at, right? And they didn't decide to start doing the full-scale internment cap until February. So a few months later... These started to pop up all through 
um, the West Coast. So we see this happen in California, Washington, and Oregon. And about 117,000 people, majority of them were actually Americans, um, lost their freedom completely. And America even was were aided by Canada and Mexico sending additional Japanese people. Uh, 21,000 from Canada and 2,264 from Mexico. Right. And, and while this was all happening, America was literally taking property and ownership. The one thing the constitution protects, right. Away from these people, Japanese owned fishing boats, impounded mass incarceration. And, Assets being frozen. All these things were happening. And the original plan was was hatched by Lieutenant John DeWitt, right? Lieutenant General, I'm sorry. And he wanted, and his suggestion was to create military zones for Japanese determined caps, right? Um, and he also wanted to lump in to his plan Italians and Germans, but that idea didn't really drum up a, a lot of support because they didn't want to see Americans of European descent um, in camps like that. It wasn't very popular, so it didn't happen. But the idea for the Japanese to be placed in those camps was met with a let's get it done. Right. Pretty much just to, that's that's what happened. Um, and because of that, these people were placed in prisons. Right. And. The whole time, if you would try to run run away, you could be shot and killed, which did happen um, at a few camps. Um, during the whole time, also, what they used these people for, they didn't just sit around. They also used them for labor. Um, so a, a thousand of them were sent out to other states for seasonal farm work. Right. Um and that was was what they what they did to help America, right? On on top of that, you also had many of them um, farming at the actual internment camp. So so there was they were being taken advantage of completely. You, you, you take their property, you take their freedom, and now you force them to work. And this was. Okay, no one said anything. There was no big uprising about this at all, right? And we we talk about it so non nonchalant in history that it, it, it's kind of looked past as you know that's just a part of war. Um, and we looked at look at FDR because all the other things that he did do as a Democratic president, but he he. But this one thing here outweighs the rest. In my estimate, you take away freedom from American citizens. That's exactly what happened. And the scary thing is that it happened again with people coming over the border, separating their kids from their parents and putting them in 
prisons, internment camps, right? And once again, it shows us how history can consistently replay itself. So the crazy thing is after the war and after all these things, and you had African-Americans coming back fighting for civil rights, immigration changed finally for the Chinese Americans and for Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders because of the civil rights movement. And I think that's very powerful to recognize, right? Um, That after war and after African-Americans fought for someone else's freedom, they wanted to get freedom themselves. And by doing so, it opened up the door for freedom for others. Welcome to another Be Inspired moment. I want to use for a quote from a quote from Dr. King. Every man must decide whether he will walk in the light of creative altruism or in the darkness of destructive selfishness. We are at a crossing that we have to decide. Are we going to stand together, support each other, or just simply be concerned about ourselves? Dr. King made it very clear that an altruistic mindset, one that does, one that someone that does things out of the kindness and understanding of empathy for others, recognizes that if injustice happens to one person, it's a threat for justice for all of us. And that it's going to take each and every one of us standing up as allies, a a rainbow coalition, if you would, to fight back against racism, fight back against oppression, fight back against domestic terrorism. It's what it is. And we cannot become selfish or surrender ourselves to our own corners, but we have to unite in hope. Hope is all about anticipating something better, uniting love, caring for one another. And hopefully this will rub off on each and every one of us and create that synergy, creates positive energy that will dictate the rest of our lives and dictate the rest of our future in America. That we won't see a division or separation of people, especially BIPOC people who we find ourselves with so much hostility amongst each other. So with that being said, understand that we need each other and nothing gets done unless we do it. And my final thought in 1867, Frederick Douglass off the heels of the 14th amendment becoming a real deal, right? It's not yet ratified, but it's happening that, African-Americans can become actual citizens. He was in Boston and he kept hearing of the anti-Chinese sentiments. Um, And he decided to speak up against it. And this is in the midst of trying to work for his people and worrying about African-Americans. He spoke up and talked about how America, in essence, was a melting pot that because of the labor of African Africans and the labor of Irish folk and and um, Italians. And these are these are all the groups that weren't well liked. And 
He said, if America in so many words wants to continue on to progress, we cannot be like the decaying countries of the past who would not welcome other people in that those people bring a wealth of knowledge and understanding. Right. He did all this while still fighting for African-American rights. What does this say? This lets us know that you can still fight for your cause and, and recognize someone else's cause as being a part of your problem as well. That we can't get anything done unless it's we. And I think it's so important to realize that the hostility that was created in the last, you know, 40, 50 years during during and after the civil rights movement was based off the myth of of a model minority that was created to to cause a rift between different groups, different minorities and the Asian community. They wanted in inward hostility between the BIPOC community. And it worked and it worked. And anti-blackness became a deal. Anti-Asianness became a deal. And in so many different groups, anti-Latino, Latinx became a part of other minority language. And that was all created to cause us to fight amongst each other and not recognize how much we need each other. And if you look through civil rights, you look through those who were in leadership, they always called for some form of a rainbow coalition for a reason, because we're much more powerful together than we are apart. So please recognize through empathy that if your fellow American, your fellow human being is hurting, you should be concerned. Thank you. Remember, there's no bad days, only bad moments. You decide. So decide to have a good day. God bless. Yeah. Let's go. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We came a long way. That's what the song say. And I could do all things. I could do all things. Yeah, I could do all things. Yeah, yeah. We came a long way. That's what the song say. And I-